welcome to the Craft Beer Showdown Podcast, where information is king, drinking is mandatory, and the beer is always flowing. Now, let's check in with your hosts and see what's on draft in this session. Welcome to the Craft Beer Showdown, session number 21. Finally cleared the 20 mark, took me a couple months to get there, but I'm finally there. Uh, before we get into the episode, I wanted to just first off thank everyone uh, for being patient while I worked through a lot of family issues, uh, death in the family, some other things that don't need to really be covered here because this is going to be a, a great episode. But I wanted to thank everyone. I uh, got a lot of your comments saying you wish the show would come back, and I finally am. Uh, Pittsburgh Craft Beer Week 2014 is right around the corner, so I need to get off my butt and start getting some episodes out there and start getting some content. Uh, we just cleared uh, 17,000 downloads of the Craft Beer Showdown, so uh, that's a huge number. I can't believe that many people want to listen to me talk. Uh, for those of you that do, thank you. I really do appreciate it. You're letting me do something I really enjoy doing. Uh, speaking of things I enjoy, this episode, uh, session number 21, I actually got the chance to sit down with Chris White from White Labs. I actually did this uh, podcast back in February, uh, February 14th to be exact. Uh, it took a little bit of editing, uh, a lot of things happening. Finally had the time and made myself produce the episode, so here it is. Uh, in this episode, Chris talks a lot about White Labs, the, the thousand strains that they keep of yeast. Uh, they generally make about 100 at a time, so that's a, a huge amount of things going on at a place. Uh, just about every brewery, most home brewers. Uh, if you don't know who White Labs is, you probably don't do a lot in the beer brewing world. Um, because he had the, took the time to sit down and talk to me, I'm overly thankful. Uh, Chris is probably one of the busiest people I've talked to so far. So, Chris, uh, if you're listening to this episode, thank you very much. And for everyone else, let's get into it. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Craft Beer Showdown podcast. Uh, in this episode... I am lucky enough to be sitting and talking with Chris White from White Labs. Uh, anyone who's a home brewer should know what White Labs is, and even if you're not a home brewer, you should. Um, and, you know, you should be using their yeast. So, hi, Chris. How are you today? Good. I'm doing great. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the show. And, and thank you very much for taking the time uh, to be on the show. I'm sure you're a fairly busy guy. Um, White Labs seems to be growing all the time, so thanks for taking the time. Sure, I enjoy it. Uh, well, I thought uh, first we could just start off with um, you know a little bit about yourself, uh, a little bit about the company. Um, I, I guess my, my biggest question about both of those was, uh, I know when you founded White Labs, but what kind of drove you to do that? Like, how did you get started with it? Uh, the bottom line is, I was a home brewer, um, so that's what, that's what led me to all of this. Uh, I was actively home brewing. I started home brewing when I was in uh, undergraduate at UC Davis, took some brewing classes there cause I thought it was interesting, but I thought I should stay serious and do what I was planning on doing, which was, you know, normal biochemistry came to UCSD to get a PhD in it and just had that kept having that home brewing bug, brewed more and more batches, built bigger systems. You know, we were doing the 15 gallons every weekend, and one of the guys I was homebrewing with, uh, by just accident or whatever, ended up starting a brewery, and that was Ballast Point. Uh, so they had a home brew store at the time, Home Brew Mart, and so there was this idea of doing a brewery. And uh, the more I brewed with them, and the more uh, 
you know, I, I just we got more and more into the process. And it turned out the lab that I was in uh, at UCSD was the yeast lab. So I was learning more about yeast and homebrewing. And the people I was homebrewing with became brewers. So it's just uh, a lot of things aligned at the right time. Oh, wow. So what, you know, back then when, when you first started, what did you use for yeast? Um, well, uh, the beginning I used dry yeast. I, so I got, I had kind of normal homebrewing experience at the time where I started with dry yeast, uh, co uh, corn sugar and kickers and things like that. And, uh, uh, it was awful. The beers were just awful. <laughs> so I would have really just almost gave up on homebrewing except, uh, my roommates in college at the time drank it all. So I brewed a few more batches. I wasn't going to drink it. I thought it was bad. Disgusting. Hmm. You know, I, and I remember the, you know, the kind of the cidery corn sugar taste. And uh, so anyway, when I came to San Diego, I was, I, we started all grain brewing. Uh, that's with the people I mentioned. And the beers got better. So then I started looking at different yeast. I was using yeast and stuff at different times. You know, what was available. They started before me. We used that a little bit. But then I started collecting my own yeast and, and culturing it up at home just with the skills I was learning. And um uh, so I started sort of naturally collecting yeast, not even from the commercial sense, like, yeah, I think even from the beginning, I might have thought this would be fun to do a company, but it was more about trying to make good beer. And okay. when I look back at it, that's how some of the best breweries start and, and maybe businesses in general, where you're not just starting with an idea of making money, you're starting with an idea of making something great and everything else can follow, you know, after that. Yeah, you know, it's just from all the people I've talked to in, in the beer industry, it seems like, you know, that passion is really what kind of drives everyone. And, yeah. you know, I don't want to say there's a lot of work involved in it, but it seems like everyone just kind of follows what they love and falls into it and then comes all the work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to love it to do the work that's required. If you pencil out the numbers, it's hard. It, you know, I think financial people say, well, why would you even get in this? Uh, it's going to take, you know so many years for you ever to make money. There's such a huge capital investment required. And for beer, you have to sell quite a bit of it before you know you, you can pay that off. And then as soon as you do, you need more new expensive capital equipment. And it's pretty similar on the yeast side. You know, We're constantly investing. Uh, we have new propagators going in at the moment. Um, and that's just continually increasing, increasing, increasing. So when you pencil it out, the numbers don't always make sense. So you have to have the passion. Yeah, definitely. Um, speaking of that, what, um, you know, from that, you know, culturing the yeast in your, your fridge at home to uh, where you are today, uh, what do you think there's any one thing that really kind of made the company get to where it is today? Or was it just little by little and craft beer just growing by, you know, little by little? Well, you know, I, I guess there was probably a lot of things. It's just like maybe raising a, a child, which, I don't have any experience with, but hmm. I think that, uh, you know, a lot of things happen and you don't even notice they're happening. It's just so gradual over time. And then you look back and say, wow, well, you know, how did, how did this person become this person? Um, and, uh, but one of the common things is, uh, you know, really is people. I think that might be said a lot, but this is really true because I got a lot of help from a lot of people, my friends, my family. Um, and without that, it would have been really hard to do this business. And uh, especially with a small business, I didn't have a lot of investment in the beginning. You need a lot of help. You know, there's still some people in San Diego. Uh, I played golf with one of the guys the other day that helped me in the very beginning. Came over and packaged homebrew yeast in the you know mid 90s, and he's still around. You know, in the in the brewing scene. 
in San Diego. And, and with those, without that kind of help, it would have been really hard to do it. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I've seen, uh, you know, in looking over the company, uh, one or two other whites involved in the company. So that's good. Exactly. So I was married at the time I started the business. Uh, we're divorced now, but my ex-wife still works at the company. Okay. Uh, so you'll see her on the list. Uh, and I, I thought that was important. Uh, people thought I was crazy <laughs> to pursue that. But I think, you know, I'm, I'm about the business and uh, I thought that was best for the business. Um, and then my brother, uh, Mike White, um, people see him quite a bit uh, because, uh, I mean, he stands out a little bit because we're identical twins. Uh, but uh, he's he's in the company and um, uh, lots of other people that are, are strong family. I've got employees almost from the very beginning that are still with me. And so we try to create a pretty strong family environment. It's a hard work. Working at White Labs is, is actually quite difficult. Uh, it's a lot of work, a lot of stress. We deal with so many little cultures with so many requirements from different breweries and, and so many different strains that it's fun working for the company when you're at a beer festival or something <laughs> and talking to brewers and, and thinking about the yeast you made. But day to day at the company, it's stressful and difficult for everybody that works there. Well, I can so, imagine. I mean, I, I just know, you know, personally trying to keep yeast and, and propagate yeast at home, you know, the, the troubles I have, and I'm only doing, you know, one, maybe two strains. Um, yeah. That actually brings me to a question I had, uh, you know, roughly or on average, how many yeast strains do you keep active at any time? Um, we we have a, a deep freeze uh, freezer which holds strains at minus eighty degrees Celsius, and there's upwards getting close to a thousand strains in there. Uh, but day to day, there's um, there's hundreds of fermentations going on uh, because they're started every day. But uh, there's uh, a little over a hundred strains going on at once. We package in the homebrew vials maybe 85 strains a week. So there's all those being, we have to redo those every week. Um, and then there's 15 or 20 other strains that are private strains for breweries, such as like Stone uses a private strain, for example, plus other strains. So we'll have that kind of strain going. We'll have uh, some strains for wineries, uh, strains for distilleries in Kentucky and stuff like that. We grow some specialty food cultures uh, and uh, things for kombucha and stuff like that. So there's always all these other little oddballs going, plus the brett, plus the bacteria in a separate lab on site, but it's a separate lab within the facility that has its own air system, air handling system. Yeah, I imagine that's not really something you'd want to get mixed in. That'd be kind of hard to undo even if you could. Yeah, we try to be real careful. So everything associated with Brett bacteria is isolated to that lab from the uh, from the plates all the way to the final package. Uh, we we really try to keep that separate. I said no for a long time to even growing it when people started asking in you know early two thousands. I guess like, hey, can I get some Brett bacteria? No, 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 no. And finally, when people keep asking, you know, you got to make a decision to figure it out. I mean, it's not that it w wasn't possible. I just hadn't figured out how to be confident in doing it, yeah. that it wouldn't sacrifice you know, everything else. So at the first lab we built was completely off-site, um, and I felt pretty good about that, but it was pretty difficult to manage when something's off-site. So when we built a new lab, a uh, building that was quite a larger building a few years ago, we just uh, planned it out to incorporate that into the facility, but to be completely separate.
So it has its own anti-room before the Breton bacteria room. It has, again, its own air handling system that's separate from everything else. And the people that go in that room have special access. So it's basically like the, the CDC of, uh, of yeast then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think so. Um, well, you mentioned stone in there. Um, I, I actually had a question. Um, are there a lot of uh, different breweries that use their own unique strains and, you know, roughly, you know, do you do a lot of work with, with big breweries or is it just a couple specific ones? Yeah. I mean, we've worked with almost, you know, every big brewery at one point or the other. Um, I mean, every is a pretty strong word, so I'm sure that's not true, but mm. it, it's close to it, you know, uh, for, for some special projects or for some regular strains or something like that. So, and a lot of those uh, breweries do have private strains. Um, they, uh, they, uh, it, it's more effort. It's more, uh, you know, to take care of a, a strain and, and have this private strain and have, uh, you know, the maintenance, all that kind of stuff. And so it's a little more expensive, a little more difficult for them to do that. But the benefit is they have something unique. You know, I'm, um, the, this, the stone yeast, for example, uh, there's really not another strain like it that we grow and propagate. And so they, it's in our uh, deep freeze and they always get that same strain. And it's a little different. So their beer has a little different character. It's, it's not Cal, it's not English, it's not other stuff. So uh, some breweries want that and they're willing to go through the extra effort that it takes. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, kind of on the, on that same path, um, there's a couple of those licensed yeasts out there, like, uh, the, uh, uh, Charlie Papazian, uh, one that you have. And I know why yeast has a rogue one, um, that, mm. you know, us, us common folk can get. Is that something that you think, um, th that you want to move towards or, um, you know, do you think that it's not really, people really don't care too much about having those licensed yeasts? I don't know. I guess I'm as curious as anybody. Um, I like to do things and be open-minded about doing things and see what happens and see what the reactions are. Um, so when Charlie Papazian, when we were talking at one point about his strain, uh, he was interested in us, you know, propagating for him under license. And I just thought, let's try that. Um, uh, it doesn't necessarily sell better than any other strains, but uh, it's just something different. And uh, uh, so we have a few like that. Um, I don't know if it's going to increase, um, you know, with, with, over, with almost 90 or it's maybe even over 90 strains now, uh, I definitely think about what is the most we can make. And since we have to make those each week, we're not drying them down, you know, mm -hmm. uh, we have some, uh, we have to think about how much we can make of that strain to make it viable, uh, to, uh, to, to produce it. Um, and so we that was one of the reasons we introduced that platinum program years ago but that hasn't really been enough to keep up with uh, you know the idea was to a couple two three different strains every quarter um so they didn't have to stay in production all year round but that still doesn't get uh as many strains as people want you know so maybe that has to be expanded or we do more licensing i don't know we talk about that stuff a lot we have so many meetings at white labs we have annual meetings to get ready for new strains for the following years and uh, we definitely take uh, customer comments that we get on the websites or when I talk to people into account when we're planning things in August, September and stuff for the following year, what strain, new strains we'll come out with. And the, the big reason I asked that was uh, in you know looking over your site, I did 
I saw a lot of the reviews of the uh, Papazian strain, and it just seemed like everybody just loved it. And no matter yeah. what they put it in, it seemed to you know seemed to get a good review out of it. There's a lot of strains we make like that though that don't really catch on with the commercial breweries. Most of the yeast we produce goes to commercial breweries, and so uh, if 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 it doesn't catch on with the commercial breweries, uh, it still limits how much we can make of it. Um, and and there's and uh, for uh, maybe that's our own uh, thing that we need to market some strains better to commercial breweries. That's one of the reasons we did the tasty rooms in San Diego to show brewers, hey, there's all these other strains and um, uh, that can be used. That it's not just a bit California and English and and you know the real popular ones. Um, it, now that you mention that, that was uh, something else I was curious about. I didn't even know this existed until I was doing a little bit of research for the show. That um, your tasting room, which I just think is an amazing idea. Um, how did that come about, and how did um, you know, how, how do you, where do you brew the or make the beer for it? Well, I think um, probably like anybody in this industry, uh, especially that started it out as a home brewer, you want to be a, a brewery. <laughs> so I always had this idea of doing a little brewery um, in the back of my mind. And the more I thought about it, when we were moving into a new facility a few years ago, the more I thought, hey, it would be great to, to do a tasting room where we, uh, we have constantly different yeast strains for people to taste. And we always did little experiments, but, you know, sometimes you don't drink what was made and, or you dump it out and then you, uh, it's a while before another one is made. So I, I just, it was an idea I was thinking about for a while. And if, if they keep stewing, you know, you want to do something with them. So I just went ahead and licensed a normal brewery like anybody else would. And um, we put that in. And in doing that in California, you, you have to make the beer on your facility if you're going to taste it. So we put a little brewery in. We make three barrel batches of beer. We split those into four or five fermentations. And so each batch of beer is made with different yeast. We put that batch on tap, and then people can do flights. Um, and we're uh, uh, we kind of wheel that out, uh, you know, towards a taste room every day and brew on it that three barrel system. But it's so it's a little bit mobile. But uh, we we're looking for a bigger brewery. The taste room has done well, and uh, we need some more beer for it. So we'll we'll be trying to put a larger brewery in there by the summer. Oh wow. Definitely uh, wish I wasn't in Pennsylvania and so far away from it because it just looking at the the list of beers, it looks pretty amazing. Yeah, uh, we're having fun with it. You know, it's uh, it's it's one of those things that's a tiny, tiny part of our business if you look at the numbers. But it's it seems like a big part of whatever we're thinking about because it's this also this public face of the company. The public is coming in. They're they're this might be their first experience with White Labs if they're not a home brewer, is that tasting room. So there's a lot of little things we've learned that we have to do in there. But we're also having fun with it. We uh, made a beer with 96 yeast strains, uh, a stout I, called Frankenstout. I saw and, that at the bottom. That looks interesting. And we're, we're characterizing all those yeasts genetically right now. So we thought, hey, let's make some beer with it, you know, and then we'll keep redoing that yeast, reusing it, and then we'll see how that compares with the genetics uh, once we have all that done, which takes, you know, a couple of years. So... Yeah, that's, so that's, that's interesting. Kind of, yeah, kind of exciting, fun things uh, we're doing. And it's a really interesting beer. There's uh, there's so much interplay between the different microbes uh, that are making different flavors. Uh, you know, my first sip uh, of the beer when we first made it, it was kind of fun because I had no expect. I mean, I didn't know what to expect. It could have been awful. It could have been great. 
you know, there's brewing strains, wine strains. There's no Britannomyces, but there's a lot of different type of yeast in there, Saccharomyces yeast, lager strains. And it turned out that it tasted great. The strains really worked together, or independently, really. But uh, uh, they, they dried the beer out. There was woody characters. And almost, you know, it tasted barrel-aged. It tasted all these other, And it was all just from the interplay of the microbes. Wow. So that was kind of fun. And hmm. we've, we've kept that going. Now, kind of moving to a different part of your business, um, you mentioned um, distilleries. Uh, do you do any work with uh, the smaller, like, craft distilleries? And you know, if you do, have you noticed them kind of increasing? It seems like that's been kind of the big hot thing lately. It is. It's uh, Yeah, we, we supply the small uh, craft distilleries with lots of yeast, uh, also nutrients and enzymes, which they need a lot more of than breweries. Um, all kind of the fermentation supplies they need. Uh, we do a class, a workshop in San Diego and, and elsewhere for them. Um, and it, it is really taking off. There's, uh, there's a few hundred now. We've got two, uh, about three in San Diego now, and uh, every community is starting to add more. Um, and there's now two trade shows uh, because one the, the kind of the trade show, uh, like the CBC – or the you know like the Brewers Association for the distillers, the similar group kind of splintered into two groups. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, so we've got another trade show we have to do uh, for the commercial distilleries, um, and it, uh, it some of the people that are doing it are from the beer industry. You know, a lot of people want to start a, that are already in the beer industry. Look at it and say, hey, it'd be great to start a little distillery and make whiskey. I've already got the mash tun and uh, kettle and, and stuff like that. And, uh, and, but there's also people coming into it that are, don't know anything about beer. And so we see a real mixture, people that uh, might be farmers that have excess fruit and they want to ferment it. That was traditionally why a lot of people started distilleries because your fruit's either going to go bad or you could distill it and then sell it off as something else later on. Yeah, and the I have noticed the beer uh, distillery kind of tie-in. Uh, most recently in, in our area in Pittsburgh, uh, there was a, a craft distillery open called Maggie's Farm Rum, and it's actually uh, started and run by the guy that makes our Craft Pittsburgh magazine. So he, he kind of does both of them at the same time. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, there's so many little stories. You know, I, uh, that you see, I, I went to a, uh, a brewery uh, just a couple weeks ago in, in Toronto, Canada, uh, Mill Street Brewery. And um, they, they put their first brewery in an old distillery. So they added, they thought it was appropriate to put a little distillery in. So in the hmm. restaurant, they've got a little distillery. And they're making beer schnapps and experimenting with different kinds of beer schnapps. And that's great and fun. And I'm sure they're not even going to make back that investment for a long time, but they're willing to just give it a try. Yeah. Um, so kind of moving from the, the company for a minute to you, um, you mentioned you homebrew. Do you still have time to homebrew? I try to do, you know, once or twice real homebrew batches. Uh, otherwise, I'm just sort of, on the outside participating in different employees batches or uh, what we're doing. But I, I, I still try to, to do my own batches, but it's, it's getting more difficult. Yeah. I, I, I can, I, I still consider myself a home brewer. Yeah. Okay. Um, now for the, the enjoying part of it, what do you, uh, you personally, what do you like more? Is there any, 
any fermented drink you like the most, beer, wine, mead? Uh, I'm definitely beer first. Uh, I like it. I enjoy it. I love all the different varieties and the process and, and everything. I think, uh, uh, but I, I, I kind of like them all. I mean, um, I, I enjoy wine and, and uh, we do participate in that field as well. But even if we didn't, I like, I, I, I like you know, some of the wines with, with different foods and stuff. Um, I like uh, distilled spirits, but mostly on the whiskey side. I think uh, I think ethanol needs wood if it's pure. Mm-hmm. So I, I really don't like vodka. I don't I don't appreciate it. I, besides just being something, you know, that's flavorless. I don't know why I'm supposed to like that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, gin, you know, anything with some flavor, I got a little more respect for. But uh, but I tend to just like uh, you know, a bourbon would be my favorite. It's the most complex and interesting uh, distilled spirit I think that exists. No, that definitely makes sense. I think there's a pretty good consensus with craft beer fans and and good bourbon. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's over the top, you know. It's it's like a big IPA. People would say, "Oh, that's not balanced. That's crazy. That's too much flavor," or a big cab or something. And a, and a bourbon, and a good bourbon's kind of like that. Yeah, I I think that's probably the best way you could put that. I never thought of it like that. Um, yeah, give, give us over the top. We like it. Yeah. <laughs> So in reading uh, about you, I, you know, I, I've, I kind of knew this before, but I knew the, the exact now. Um, you, you helped to co-author a book and helped with um, a, a second book. So the yeast, the practical guide to fermentation, and the brewmaster, the craft beer game. Uh, are there any other books that you've worked on or written yourself? No, just a lot of articles. Okay. Um, and I and I do more seminars than anything else. Uh, lots and lots of uh, little seminars for homebrew groups or for breweries. Uh, many many of those every year. Um, some of those sometimes I sit down and write some articles, uh, and then I I tried to kind of put those into a lot of that information into the book. And Jamil really helped organize all that and get something that was sort of readable <laughs> on a pretty difficult topic. Um, the game was something, uh, the Brewmaster game, something I did uh, earlier on with my brother Mike, and uh, and uh, we played a lot of games and stuff in the past, and we wanted to do something that was with brewing ingredients, so we made something where you have cards of malt tops and yeast cards, and you make different beers uh, out of them, and that's just been kind of fun, and it's uh, we're still we're still selling it. Uh, yeah, that that sounds pretty great, um, <laughs> and the. Uh, Practical Guide to Fermentation is one of the books that's on my list to do. Um, okay, it's kind of kind of a long list. It keeps getting keeps getting longer. <laughs> right. Yeah, I am the same way. I, I keep picking up new ones, and uh, sometimes it takes a while to get to them. Um, but I, it's been. I'm really glad I did it. It was it was hard to do it, and I think anybody who's wrote wrote a book or whatever would say that. And some people write a bunch of them. I don't know how they do that. I have a lot of respect for them because they're, you know, it's more than even writing. It's all of that formatting. It's and when you write a book for the Brewers Association, you know, you're doing all of that. I mean, the pictures, the the graphs, the, you know, there's no big technical team that that helps you, so uh, or or art team or something like that. So you do everything. Oh wow. Yeah. And Jamil's wife did a lot of the the drawings, for example, in our book, oh, and okay. uh, they just you know they just say, hey, you guys figure it out. You want to figure? Figure it out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so we did, and uh, it, it was it was it was a fun process. I got to know Jamil really well, and we're friends now. And uh, 
uh, get to catch up once in a while, but he's so busy doing his brewery now that that doesn't happen very often. And a lot of, uh, and, and the most rewarding part is, all, is the feedback, you know, I mean, I, I talk to a lot of people when I talk to home brewers, a lot of times they have the book in their hands <laughs> and um, they ask certain things about it. Uh, so that's, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, so I think I, I'm, I, we might have just kicked that book a, a couple notches up on my read list now. Cool. Yeah, it's, it's like I get to enjoy it all the time, you know, because I get questions about it, because people talk about it. It's not like I just wrote it like an article. You just kind of write it and no one ever seems to care. Like maybe people read it, but it's, it doesn't, it's just not such a living document. They, they, uh, they don't ask you really about it and, and you just, it just fades into history. Hmm. But the book has just more, uh, more life to it. Um, I guess kind of moving from, you know, history of the company and you, uh, there, there were some technical things, uh, I'm interested in, and I'm sure, you know, the people listening are too. Um, and I kind of compiled these from some questions I had, some questions, some other homebrewing friends had, uh, and just, you know, overall things that I, I think everyone could benefit from knowing. The first question I had was, uh, oxygen and fermentation. I know that you need oxygen for fermentation, but how important is it? Because I know some homebrewers will go to the point of, you know, pushing oxygen into their beer before they start fermentation. And is, is there a tipping point where you can over-oxygenate that beer when you're starting fermentation? Well, I'll tell you an easy way to think about it. Oxygen, uh, oxygen adding oxygen is almost the same as, as how much yeast you add. Um, and if you if you think about it that way, it'll be a little easier to, to think about. It. A lot of people are asking how much yeast you should add, and, and that makes a lot of sense. The more yeast you add, the faster the fermentation will go. But we don't often think about that as the same with oxygen, and they're they're the same. It's really related. Um, okay. So the more oxygen you add, the faster the fermentation is going to start. The faster it'll finish. The healthier the yeast will be after you collect it. So you can't get to the 10 ppm, 8 to 10 ppm. That's uh, saturation in, in normal wort that's recommended without pumping oxygen. You shake your fermenter, you drop it into a carboy, you're going to get two to three to four ppm oxygen. Um, that's going to leave you with a beer that won't finish out the same for if, if you add 10 ppm, eight to 10 ppm. Yeah. Uh, and fortunately, actually for home brewing, it's really easy to get to eight to 10 ppm. You get a pure oxygen bottle, you get a stone. Uh, five gallons of beer, you, it takes about two minutes to get to that level when cool wort. Um, and it's, it's actually much more difficult on the commercial scale uh, to hit the right numbers. They, people think of it as the opposite, that it's because they got the, the equipment, but it's, it's still quite difficult on the commercial scale to hit that 8 to 10. So it's pretty easy for the home brewer, and it has this huge benefit. Um, uh, so you, you, and you don't really see that benefit. It doesn't look like anything different has happened if you if you had three or four ppm oxygen so the only way you know is if you did side by side ones that had three or four and had ten and we've done a lot of those side by side ones and it makes a quite a quite a difference it's just the same as, as again how much yeast you add so um, those those if you maximize those two you have the best fermentations so I think uh, every home brewer if they want to make the best beer they can they should add pure oxygen for those two minutes into five gallons of beer now, this is a kind of a, a crazy question, but a, a good friend of mine I've had on the show before said that adding a tiny bit of olive oil can help with oxygenation during fermentation. Have you ever heard of that? Well, the reason that works is the, the, the only thing that yeast are really doing with oxygen 
in beer fermentation is making fatty acids. Okay, they, they're not really growing on that auction. They're yeah. making other products. They're making fatty acids. So if you give them the fatty acids in the form of olive oil, uh, that's kind of like replacing oxygen because now they don't need to make those fatty acids. So actually it works. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, and there hasn't been a whole lot of experimentation with it besides what New Belgium did a few years ago. We made some beers in our tasting room with olive oil and without and with oxygen and the beers taste pretty similar and, and, and you, get the, you get the same fermentation kinetics as oxygen. So that's kind of nice if you do it right. You have to dissolve the olive oil and some alcohol, a little tiny bit, and, then, uh, and that'll be soluble in, in the beer fermentation. So uh, there's a few tricks to get it to work right. New Belgium did not continue the practice. They did the experiment, but uh, some small breweries are doing it and a lot of home brewers are doing it because it's a little easier than adding oxygen, but there's not a great set of um, you know, bulletproof recommendations yet because people are sort of doing it, but there's not a lot of good experiments um, that show you exactly how much you should add and how you should dissolve it and stuff like that. So I think we're still talking about that and maybe try to try to do something um, and encourage other people to do some experiments with it. But it works. And the nice thing with olive oil, too, is it's probably harder to over-oxygenate because you, when you asked about oxygen before, certainly you can over-oxygenate, but it's really hard to on the homebrew scale, just like you can over-pitch. Yeah. Uh, it's, just, it's just hard to on the homebrew scale because we're not creating any back pressure, uh, usually in our fermentations, that would increase the solubility of oxygen. So in a commercial setting, when they're going in line, uh, through these stones, they can they can over you know kind of pressure it and get 20, 30 ppm of oxygen, which causes problems. But in the home brewing side, when you're just doing into a kind of an open setting, bubbling it into your fermenter, it's really hard to get over the eight to ten. About some of the other types of yeast that you offer, um, you know, I've heard rumors and stories before people saying that uh, wine yeast wouldn't uh, won't ferment uh, wort. You know, you can't use a wine yeast on on a uh, beer. It just won't ferment correctly. Um, have you ever heard of anyone using a wine yeast for a, a certain beer style? I know we mentioned the the Franken uh, Franken stout, but uh, right. you know, is that something that you've heard of before, or can it happen? Well, I mean, here's the thing: the uh, the wine yeast are are really much more. A lot of the strains are much more similar to what's out in nature right now, because you can go collect some strains from a vineyard or something, and turns out they make pretty good wine because they've been around the vineyards. But brewer's yeast is super, super specific. It's been cultured for a lot longer. It is super mutated. It doesn't make uh, phenols and stuff like that, and you cannot find it in nature. So brewer's yeast is really, really unusual. So once in a while, you can find a wine strain from nature, or you know, that's been used longer that has some of the properties that can make okay beer. But usually, uh, wine yeast and distillers yeast are, are again closer to what you'd find in nature. So uh, uh, they'd make phenols, for example, that may or may not mate, which would create some changes in the yeast. Uh, they're they're just not as as bulletproof, you know, as an ale yeast or something like that, where you'd repitch and it's the same each time, and and you're not getting phenols and other weird flavors. So with wine yeast, uh, what you have to do is you have to experiment and see. You just have to try little fermentations, and they're much better suited for wild kind of beers, wheat beers, Belgian style beers, beers that are going to maybe have some phenols and some funkiness. And then, sure, you're you can use all sorts of wine strains, but I wouldn't expect to make a a nice pale, ale, clean pale ale, or or Kolsch, or something like that. Oh, okay. Um, 
especially for this, it's probably more for the home brewer than the, the big brewers, but does uh, chlorine and chloramides in water, you know, interact with yeast? Do yeast care about them? And it, is it good, bad, kind of inconsequential? Yeah, it, it, chlorine's not good uh, for, for yeast or any microbes, and that's one reason why it's there. So uh, on most commercial breweries, they remove it. Um, because it can also spike at different times from water uh, treatment plants if they need to. So uh, on, on the commercial scale, it, it's you really should remove it. Then you remove the chloramines as well. Um, and on the home brewing side, I, I don't know how common it is uh, uh, because a lot of people are using household waters. But I, I think it's a good idea, yes, to remove it. Okay. And I, I think that seems to be kind of the common trend with homebrewers is using you know using water from either spring or or distilled okay um yeah we we always bought bought water well not always for different beers we buy when we were brewing a lot would sometimes buy bottled water but then there are times we wanted to use more san diego water and and filter it a little bit okay um, when we're talking about the yeast in the, in the vials that, you know, that I, I buy out at the store, um, yeah. about what is the, you know, how long does that yeast last in that vial if it's, you know, refrigerated and cared for correctly? And, you know, when, when should I kind of steer clear of a retail package and let the, the retailer know that it might be a little old? Well, we put a best before date on the on each vial near the uh, near the lot number, and that's four months uh, from when we release the yeast, um, because it's about a 17 day production cycle. And so when it clears QC, it's already been packaged, and uh, and then it, it's uh, best before date is four months from that date. We have some experiments going on to see because we have a a little package tweak change uh, coming up in in the middle of the year where we can. Uh, perhaps uh, get a little longer shelf life with yeast. So we're experimenting with that right now. But um, uh, but four months. So if you, if you look at the best before date and, you know, it's in the same month, it, it's already getting about four months old. Uh, we, we started something years ago with the homebrew stores, and we're the only ones to do it, as far as I know, that we take back the expired yeast. Excuse me. So we want stores to... We, that was done in the beginning to encourage stores to not sell expired yeast, and so um, we we they they if they sign up for this and they meet a couple of conditions, they can return a certain percentage of of the expired yeast, uh, and a lot of stores take advantage of that. We call that FAP Freshness Assurance Program, hmm. and uh, it's I think it's been a nice thing because the stores have uh, they're willing to take on more of the yeast that they you know that might. They might be afraid would expire because homebrewers also would have told me in the beginning a lot that the stores didn't have all the yeast they wanted. So we tried to create some kind of win-win there. So this, it, but not all the stores participate. Uh, but if they if they did, and we encourage all of them to, then they could send back the expired yeast. Perfect. Uh, that that makes a lot of sense. It's a pretty awesome program to have because I'm sure that's why I can get as many different strains as I can at my local shop. Yeah, yeah, they they shouldn't worry about buying those if they, especially if they buy a few of them, because if they don't sell, then then we're willing to take them back and replace them. Now, as as to packaging, you mentioned that you might be coming out with some new uh, packaging here soon. What was what kind of drove you to doing the the vials? Because I know 
you know, uh, Y East uses the the uh, smack packs. Uh, personally, I've always been a fan of the vials. Um, they just seem to store transport and everything a little bit easier. Was there a specific reason you did that, or was it just kind of what you thought worked best? Well, I was always in, in kind of a test tube, and when uh, I was hand-delivering yeast to people here in San Diego, go to the stores and stuff, those test tubes were fine, but when it became more of a, you know, a, a, a national business, uh, those didn't hold up to the rigors of transport and stuff like that. So I needed to find a different package. And I was just heading to a beer festival one time over here in California in Mammoth. Stopped at an AMPM and I saw some candy in a, in a vial like that uh, sitting next to the register. And I thought, that's perfect. That would work great for yeast. Look how sturdy it is. So uh, it took a while to find out where I could get those. Um, but uh, we ended up, and then um, there was some store saying, man, you got you to gotta make a change. So we were under a lot of pressure to do it. And uh, the timing worked out again great where I found something that worked. And um, it's it's really been nice uh, because they are sturdy. You can ship them around the world. They don't leak, um, and uh, you know they display pretty good and stuff. So uh, we've been it, we've been using those for I don't know long time now over probably something like fifteen years or so. Oh wow! Uh, but there's a couple of things that we're trying to address. Like I said. Um, uh, for the future because there's a lot of plastic in them so they're getting more and more expensive which makes it hard to not have the yeast get more expensive um, and uh, and they hold a lot of pressure so if there is any gas produced in the yeast they can they can kind of be get a little over carbonated mm -hmm. which is tough when you're trying to pour it out so we're trying to figure out uh, a few things about you know gas release and, and stuff like that so um, if we if we make some, any changes we make would be to improve quality. Okay. And shelf life. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess to to kind of you know wrap things up here because that was about all the you know the the major kind of technical questions I had that we didn't cover with all the other you know the other parts there. Um, you know, do you kind of foresee you know the the crystal ball of of brewing, do you see anything you know big trends coming up in yeast or home brewing or you know the the craft beverages in general? Um, I just think it, it seems to be home brewing is going to get more and more popular because it always starts from somebody telling somebody. You know, I mean, I think every home brewer says they know that you know uh, they got it from somebody else. They got the idea from somebody else. You know. And, uh, and you, we always are bringing more people into it. And I think that's going to continue for a while. It's such a fun hobby. There's more access to ingredients. There's shows like yours that are telling people how to do it. And uh, I don't I, – I, I'm not a pessimist. Uh, uh, some people, you know, keep looking for this when it's going to stop or whatever. But I think we still – we have a huge population in the United States. And I think we can keep growing for a bit. Um, people want to make uh, new and better beers. The beers have gotten so – good from home brewing um, because of, of the passion and, and, and things like that. So I think that's going to continue and, and uh, a lot of little breweries get created out of that, a lot of the nano breweries, which I think there's a lot of room for. Uh, but there's a, it, what's the less room is for the large craft breweries. I mean, there's only so much handle space and that gets a little difficult, uh, but we just need to make more handles for them, you know, more mm -hmm. new craft beer bars, which is happening. Yeah. And then for little new nanos that serve their own beer. And then there's room for thousands more of those, I think. I mean, corner little brewery 
uh, nano brewery type things and bars. Um, and we, we've got to keep making uh, enough yeast for them. So that's a challenge as a supplier. I mean, we're, we're trying to expand the number of, we're always trying to get new yeast strains and learn more about them, but we're also trying to make more of them and keep up with that, keep up with this industry and then the needs of the industry. So that's why we have other things like nutrients, uh, like the Servomyces and the Clarity Firm enzymes and different ones because that's what people are asking for now and they also need more yeast. Um, we and, and uh, so we're trying to always add more capacity and look where we need to be in a couple of years for yeast production standards. So we know we're 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 already getting close to our capacity in our facility that's relatively new in San Diego. So we got to keep building on it. Uh, as for kind of new products and you know things that your White Labs does other than just yeast, um, I, I do notice a lot of the the test kits that I don't think a lot of people know really exist out there to test beer and wine and, you know, IBUs and all of that. Um, is that something that's big business for you now? Do you see that increasing at all? Well, you know, I mean, we're, we're a little company still, so we're not this, we're not a great marketing, uh, uh, a powerhouse or anything like that. So I think the message on the test kits is coming out pretty slowly. Um, and, uh, and I'm okay with that. We, you know, we talk about it in formats like this and, and it'll just get more and more recognition, I think, or, or what we wanted to do was, um, to have something where, um, a home brewer could pick up uh, this test kits in a home brew store too. So we had to figure out how to make a home brew store want to carry them, and they send them back to us. So the test kit name is maybe even in a little incorrect because it's mostly a delivery vehicle back to White Labs. Uh, so the box has more about uh, instructions about collecting the yeast and bottles to send it back to us and shipping included to send it back to us. We do the work. Um, so we do a lots of lab analysis now anyway. We do big QC days, which is mostly targeted at commercial breweries, but home, brew home brewers do participate as well. We have a big analytical, our analytical lab in San Diego is bigger than our yeast lab uh, in terms of size. So we're doing lots of analysis on beer and wine and spirits. And we just wanted to, like, to offer that to home brewers because everything I've tried to do has been for home brewers and commercial, home and commercial. So. We wanted to figure out something, that, like I said, that would that homebrew stores would participate in, and they could make a couple dollars on their side. But then homebrewers could be able to get it. They go on to yeastman.com to register it because uh, that's our our internal tracking site uh, for testing and yeast production, as well as our order site. But they go on and register that, and then you can add other tests. So you can buy the beer analysis test kit, which is which includes uh, IBU analysis. And then you can add anything. You can add gluten testing. You can add alcohol, IBUs. Uh, uh, that's already there, right? But uh, color, um, almost anything. Esters, if you wanted to. Fusils. So it's it's uh, it, it just it and kind of you know at reduced prices because the the testing is expensive. But we want to, we know that it doesn't always work in the homebrew setting. Um, so it's kind of hard to cut pricing when testing is so expensive to do, but, uh, we just, we're hoping that this also bundles a lot of testing at once because different home brewers will be sending it back and we can do the testing, you know, kind of combined. Yeah, that, and I think that's a great service to offer, especially for, um, I kind of, my term former, the semi-pro brewers, the ones that know enough that they could start a nano brewery, but don't have access to these types of, of you know, services on their own. I think that's amazing. Uh, same cool. way with your, uh, 
the the work all the workshops that you offer. Uh, yeah, doing yeah. more and more of those because we put a classroom into San Diego and uh, and and also that analytical lab that I mentioned has classroom facility in it, so we can teach people how to do different things in the lab setting. Um, and so we, we're doing more more and more workshops. I, you know, I mean, I always that's just something I want to have in conjunction with with the yeast and and because. Um, when you're talking about yeast and fermentation, that takes a lot of education. That was one of the reasons for the book and the tasting room and the other things. So the more we can do of that in-house and, and stuff, it, it's not only fun because we like teaching. I think it's helpful. The most popular class we did last year was one on sours. Uh, we had Vinny Trilerzo and Tommy Arthur there, and uh, there was so much excitement about it. It booked up real fast. So then we made a, CD, a DVD of it, so we, we're still we're selling that. But... Um, uh, we, I think we need to, those kind of classes that there's, it's just funny that the, um, I guess that just shows me that people are paying attention to the workshops because the one that is the most interesting sells out right away. <laughs> yeah. No, and just looking at all the different ones you have here, it seems pretty amazing. I mean, the, the Siebel Institute essential quality control course, uh, you know, yeah. to yeast essentials, uh, uh, up to you know ones it looks like it for actual even professional brewers for yeast handling for brewers. Um, yeah, so most of the classes are geared to towards brewers because uh, uh, they they need continuing you know education and stuff too. So that we have yeast essentials classes for brewers, distillers, winemakers. We have advanced that that Siebel class is. Uh, I mean, anybody can sign up for these classes. They just they can be a little bit expensive. So a lot of them are commercial set of people. Uh, uh, spending company money, you know, um, but the Siebel class was two weeks, so the people had to be in San Diego for two weeks. Um, they got all sorts of analytical skills, which uh, uh, was it was the majority of the class. But uh, then we offer some ones that uh, are geared really for home brewers, so they don't just sell out to commercial brewers right away. Um, and so we we're doing a few of those, and then we're doing them. Um, uh, you know, where we have a, we always a few spots for. Uh, uh, webinar aspect of it too. So we do the class. If it doesn't, if it's not just a lab class, we'll do. A, we'll open up a few spots for a webinar as well. Okay. Uh, last thing, really, is there anything uh, White Labs is doing in the near future? Any new kind of products releases? Anything that we should all be on the lookout for, or just kind of you know new things as they come? Oh man, there's. Uh, <laughs> It's so many things we're working on, um, but uh, you don't always see a lot of those things, you know, because uh, you know we're doing this big project on the DNA analysis, uh, the full genome sequence, basically, of the yeast strains, and so there'll be some cool stuff we'll learn about yeast strains from that. But uh, that's kind of going on in the background right now. We're you know increasing the yeast production in San Diego, um, and. Uh, you don't always see that, but that's a huge investment of our time and our efforts, uh, and we're going to continue that. So, and then, like I said, we're working on packaging to optimize the the yeast and the shelf life, and so that's something that probably people will see because that's more retail. Um, and then, uh, and then new uh, new yeast strains. Any uh, plans on you know moving more towards the East Coast to have a, a second lab or distribution center? Well, about half the yeast we sell in the United States is uh, on the East Coast. Um, so if, if we were going to build another facility, that 
um, that certainly would make sense, at least something to look at. So, um, well, I, I volunteered the Pittsburgh area if you're going to have a tasting room. That's all I'm saying. Very good. Very good. Um, uh, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> uh, that's, that's, uh, you know, I've always, uh, that is, um, uh, Pennsylvania is one area I've always sort of looked at uh, that uh, could be possible if we did something. But uh, it's, uh, uh, there's lots of stuff in the works. Hmm. And the big big reason I even asked that was I know um, uh, More Beer actually just recently uh, moved out our direction. So it cut about half of the shipping time off of our orders to right. make our life a little yeah. better. I definitely paid attention to that and uh, talked to them uh, quite a bit at More Beer, and I think that's worked out for them well. And and they they chose that location, you know, based on the logistics that, that was going to reach uh, most, uh, you know, their their customers faster. And then they found that great uh, the warehouse there in Pittsburgh. Um, so that's working out good for them. And shipping is similar for us. We have to ship it to the stores. And if it's across the country, um, you know that that cost has to go into the into the price of the east. So we're a little more expensive on the east coast than we are on the west. Um, we we try to uh, be careful on how much we charge for shipping. Um, you want to charge what you're getting charged, but you also don't want to price yourself out. Yeah. So um, uh, that's it's also something we've had to work on a lot because we're trying to we have to use pretty expensive shipping, air shipping, to get it to people fast. So um, for those reasons, it would make sense for us to have some kind of uh, help there to, uh, uh, to to have yeast there in uh, a little easier. Yeah. The way. Well, to, to wrap things up, was there anything else you wanted to, you know, the audience to know about yeast, about White Labs? Um you know, brewing in general, any kind of last thoughts? Well, I, I think you covered a lot. I mean, you, those were great questions. Uh, you know, it's, uh, there's a, there's a lot of people at white labs, uh, that uh, really care about beer brewing and home brewing. Um, so I'm just one person in that, that company. There's, there's trolls and Neva and a whole bunch of other people who are, are doing just great things. And, uh, so I'm definitely owe a lot to the employees there. And, and, um, and then they come up with a lot of new ideas and stuff. So we're going to keep working on it. Awesome. Well, Chris, thanks again for taking the time. Uh, I really do appreciate it. You know, I, I'm sure running this company and, you know, working with everyone else probably takes a pretty good bit of time. So I appreciate you taking just about an <laughs> yeah. hour here. Sure. No problem. That was fun. So everyone, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for spending some time with uh, Chris White from White Labs and myself. And uh, I hope to talk to everyone again soon. So thanks again, Chris. And cheers. Okay, thanks, Brian. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Craft Beer Showdown podcast. Make sure to check out craftbeeracademy.com for more information and to give feedback on today's show. Don't forget to watch the next episode live plus hangouts or youtube by going to craftbeeracademy.com slash live dash show